Hello, and welcome to another edition of the Society of Critical Care Medicine's Eye Critical Care Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Guy. Today, we'll be speaking with Krista A. Shore, MSN, who is with us discussing implementing the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Shore is the Program Manager for Quality Improvement in Clinical Research Databases at Cooper Hospital University Medical Center in Camden, New Jersey. She was also an active member on the latest Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines to be published in Critical Care Medicine in 2013. Thank you for being here with us, Ms. Shore. Thank you. I appreciate the invitation. Okay. And so starting from there, uh, I'd like to know um, most people, unless you've, you know, I guess been living under a rock for the past, you know, four or five years, understand that surviving sepsis is really the standard of care in taking care of a patient who is septic or suspected sepsis. But if you can give us a little background as to if I'm a clinician uh, at a community hospital or a university hospital, uh, either a physician clinician, nurse clinician, respiratory therapist, uh, or, or pharmacist, why should I be engaged in what surviving sepsis is? Why is it important to me? Well, I think uh, understanding the um, the clinical significance from a morbidity mortality aspect is obviously important to all clinicians. Uh, there's a, a um, economic impact in having these patients in our institution. Uh, they tend to um, use a lot of resources depending on the severity of their uh, illness. Patients that come into the institution with a, a, a clinical signs and symptoms of infection uh, maybe could go to the floor and are discharged or actually even discharged from the emergency room. The patients that we are targeting with the surviving sepsis campaign are the patients who potentially are uh, more severely ill um, and hopefully our goals with the surviving sepsis campaign is to decrease morbidity and mortality, but also to hopefully prevent uh, organ dysfunction, which is really what will get the patient into um, the guidelines and the protocols that we're primarily focusing on uh, patients with infection and who develop organ dysfunction and potentially um, even progress into a shock state. And those patients um, wind up in the ICU and can be in the institution for a significant period of time. And it also impacts their functional status uh, when they are discharged from the hospital um, and can have long-term effects. Uh, so uh, the goal of the guidelines really is to first identify patients um, and initiate treatment as early as possible. So. The purpose of the guidelines really is to bring this particular disease process to the forefront of the clinician's minds and to hopefully prevent further deterioration with early recognition and implementation of treatment. Now, the, the guidelines represent, they're just not a work product of yourself, as you pointed out. I mean, there are thousands of people really involved in the development of the guidelines. This is just not an initiative of a small committee or just the Society of Critical Care Medicine. Uh, there are, what, 20-some-odd international medical uh, societies involved in, in the, in the uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign? Yes, um, I agree with that. I mean, this is not something that was developed by a handful of clinicians. Uh, this is a worldwide a program that's been evaluated by uh, numerous organizations and within the organizations, each specific area of the guidelines, there were subcommittees. So for the resuscitation area, there may have been uh, 20 people on that particular committee that reviewed uh, available literature. Uh, there were specifics um, for the pediatric patient population. Um, there were specific groups related to the emergency medicine uh, side of the guidelines. 
so it was not only, you know, the, the organizations, the supporting organizations, the committees that were actually involved in uh, writing the guidelines uh, were involved hundreds of, hundreds of folks. And then even after the guidelines were completed, the review process involved um, experts in the area as well and uh, generated, you know, interesting uh, comments and, uh, you know, allowed the committee to further investigate that they had the most up-to-date information and were providing uh, the most clinically significant uh, data points uh, supporting the guidelines. So we're really talking about the standard of care and managing the septic individual here. Yes, throughout the world, actually. So that being said, um, you know, there's, I don't want to get too much into the science of how we came to, you know, a particular resuscitation endpoint or the timing, you know, what, how we got to the science or the analysis of, you know, why this timing of antibiotic is better than that timing. But if we could go through, uh, the key points of the guidelines, how there may be differences with the, the, the revised guidelines versus the older guidelines. And, you know, you talk about implementing. I mean, sometimes it's really great to sit around and say, well, you know, these three or four things are what we need to do, but how do we bring them into practice in our emergency departments and our intensive care units? How do we get buy-in um, from the nursing staff or the physicians? How do we develop those order sets? How do we do benchmarking? Uh, what kind of things that you perhaps have learned from look back or changing cultures regarding the way we used to do it or the way we've always done it to adopting the surviving sepsis guidelines? Kind of a, it's, it's kind of a big plate and really a small podcast, but, um, take it where you think is the best place to start. Yeah, I agree. Um, there are, you know, obviously some significant changes within the institution when you're implementing this type of program. Um, it does involve not only the emergency department and the ICU at this point. I mean, we are really involving the whole hospital. Uh, so this particular patient population, the majority of the patients will come to the ICU directly from the ED, but there are a percentage of patients, maybe 20, 25% of patients that come to the ICU that are uh, on the floor or come from directly from the OR. Um, and then we have a handful of patients who actually develop severe sepsis or septic shock, um, in the ICU that was unrelated to their initial uh, reason for admission. Uh, so it does involve clinicians from the emergency room all the way to the 10th floor of your hospital, if that's how many floors that you have. Um, so w- several key points in trying to implement this type of protocol is really to evaluate the groups that you actually have and ensure that you have administrative support. So we really do... Um, allow time before implementing such a protocol or a performance improvement program to ensure that the hospital administration is supportive. And sometimes in order to get buy-in from the administration, you really need to show the number of admissions, the financial impact it has on the institution, and share data that has been in the literature to show that these particular protocols have really not only improved outcomes for patients, but have also decreased length of stay, um, decreased the financial impact, decreased the throughput within your institution. There are a lot of implications in, it, in implementing this particular uh, protocol that sometimes you actually have to look for and measure in order to get buy-in from administration. And once you have that, you really need to evaluate your departments and the uh, interaction with inner departments. So, if you're able to establish a relationship with um, the head of the emergency department and the head of the ICU, that's a great starting point. So from leadership, from a physician leadership 
um, once they actually collaborate together, they can trickle that down to their staff. Uh, there will be some people who do not buy into the program, but we just continue to plug along, and hopefully they'll they'll jump on the train with us. Uh, nursing also has to be on board, um, so we do uh, rely heavily on the nursing staff management uh, from the ED and the ICU. Um, and once you have that, again, it's a trickle-down effect that this is the way we're going to do it. Um, obviously, this program does not work for every single patient, but the majority of the patients, um, the, the guidelines will apply. Uh, so once you're actually established that interdepartmental uh, collaboration, then you really have to establish what the goals are of the institution and maybe short-term goals. You know, um, if your goal is to decrease time to antibiotics, say, uh, within the next six months, it's good for all the groups to actually establish the goal together of what the primary goal is. Um, and then you want to formalize some interactive uh, relationships between the units. Um, so that they learn how to work together as a team um, so there's no difference between a patient that's in the ED to the ICU. If the patient has to remain in the emergency department for 10 to 12 hours because we can't find a bed, the care should be exactly the same as if they were in the ICU. Uh, so we need to collaborate with them to provide resources if necessary. Um, and then not to minimize the importance of the medicine team, but they really come into um, play with this particular um, disease process in that patients who are in the hospital and develop severe sepsis and septic shock um, unfortunately have the highest mortality, have a very high mortality compared to patients coming into the ED. So we really need to collaborate with our hospitalists and intensivists to identify patients as early as possible and get them to the unit um, to the ICU as soon as possible, um, but it's really the, the primary focus there is going to be on early recognition. And again, with any uh, protocol that you're going to implement in your hospital, there has, there has to be people who really have a passion for this and are going to drive it. Uh, just to say that we're going to implement a sepsis performance improvement program is never going to work. There has to, you need actually like a cheerleading squad to say that this, disease process is important. This is what we have on our agenda as um, uh, a hospital agenda to improve care with this particular patient population, and everyone has to be on the same page and has to buy in uh, together. And then we also need to develop some sort of data collection process that's consistent and provide feedback to the teams. Um, and there's uh, several different ways where you can provide feedback, but that particular piece is significant into making the program work to deliver information back to the team as to how they're performing. So that's yeah, that's a lot of things going on at once. And and so as a leader of an organization or a hospital, you know, you're looking at the surviving sepsis guidelines and you're seeing things like um, time from the basically almost like a, a door-to-needle time in regards to antibiotics, the time the patient looks septic, the time they get the antibiotics. Two hours in the emergency department, one hour for the intensive care unit. Those times are going to remain the same or are we going to see differences in those? Uh, it's actually uh, the same, so the, it's three hours. Um, so if it's a, an emergency department uh, patient that's identified in the emergency department, it's uh, the time of presentation for that particular area is considered to be triage time. Uh, so once the patient uh, hits the door, um, there actually have been um, 
you know, some challenges with that. Um, and part of the reason why there's a difference between patients who are in the hospital only having one hour compared to patients presenting to the ED is that we recognize the fact that, you know, there are some tests that have to be performed um, in order to come up, you know, to come up with a diagnosis, um, you know, to review allergies in a patient that you're not familiar with. Um, and there are some obstacles that have to be overcome when a, a new patient presents to the emergency department. Uh, but I can say that over a very short period of time, uh, hospitals have really done a fabulous job in um, you know, decreasing their time to antibiotics. You know, there's been a number of articles um, published over the past, I'd say, five to seven years that, you know, clearly indicate that um, early administration of antibiotics really improves um, outcomes for patients and, you know, obviously decreases mortality. So um, that was actually not the hardest sell, um, and there have been some institutions that have really come up with some interesting strategies to um, implement early administration of antibiotics. But again, it's not the easiest thing to overcome, but um, that's a target that most hospitals will go for um, as their early goal um, to decrease their time to antibiotic administration. So with all these different initiatives with the surviving sepsis, what I'm hearing you saying is that it is a reasonable approach for nursing leaders and hospital leaders to sit there and say, you know, it's not reasonable to bring on all of these guidelines. It would be nice, it would be ideal to be able to land antibiotic administration, fluid resuscitation, source control, and we're going to work towards that goal. But what did you do at Cooper? Did you try to bring all those goals as far as uh, attainment of, of those quality benchmarks simultaneously, or did you do a more focused approach saying, this is our highest priority, say it be antibiotics, we're going to land this, build this culture, and then move on to something else? Yeah, I, I mean, we actually um, were able to do that. We had um, maybe a, a year, a year and a half lead time with our um, lactate. So we were drawing lactates and uh, implementing that prior to the initiation of the campaign uh, seven years ago. So we were pretty much on board with lactate and early identification of patients. So we really had a good handle on that. But for most institutions, that's really where they should start, the early identification process and being able to recognize recognize the patients, which is really not a measurable item. Um, But we found that institutions that are able to identify patients early, you know, are able to initiate therapy, you know, sooner, and those patients actually do very well. Um, But if you're initially starting out this program and you start to measure Say there's a, a six-hour bundle, you're going to focus on the resuscitation bundle, for instance. Um, you will need to collect data, maybe even only if it's on the next 10 patients, say, and you recognize that your fluid resuscitation uh, goals are not up to par, maybe you would just want to focus on the, the fluid resuscitation piece for the next 10 patients and continue to build on the success. Um, but it depends on each institution. I mean, you may start out that your lactate performance is, you know, 90%, your fluid resuscitation is high, 90%, but your antibiotics are only at 60. Um, so you can certainly just focus on improving your antibiotic delivery because the other goals are primarily being met, and there may be some patients that actually fall out because of their chronic health conditions or some physiology um, that you really can't figure out why you, you weren't able to be compliant with those particular indicators. But um, in trying to build this program, we try to build on success. 
So you really want to show improvement if, with one indicator and then move on. Um, some institutions are very successful, um, you know, implementing the whole, you know, uh, the whole bundle or the whole guide, you know, set of guidelines. Um, but it can be overwhelming for an institution who has not uh, started this. I mean, most hospitals in the United States are obviously aware of this, um, but maybe haven't had the resources to really implement the, you know, the full campaign. So focusing on one or two items or just focusing on the first three hours of care, um, however you do it. Um, anything you do to try to improve the care for this particular patient population will just trickle down um, to uh, overall improvement. Um, and that's what we recognize. Um, so there are some things that we actually do not measure that we found that needed to be addressed. Um, for instance, uh, inserting central lines in the emergency department was a challenge. Um, and we recognized that very early on because the resources really weren't even down in the ED, um, you know, for CDP measurement or SCVO2 measurement. So the nursing staff had to, you know, we had to educate the nursing staff. Um, putting lines in in the ED wasn't something that they did um, standardly. So the ICU team was able to support the ED if they needed a line placed. Um, but then over a course of, you know, six to ten months, the ED uh, felt very comfortable putting, you know, central lines in and, uh, you know, maintaining the hemodynamic status of the patients in the ED while they waited for an ICU bed. Um, but again, there are items that you are not measured um, in the performance improvement program as far as the, um, the bundle measurements and indicators, but they're, you know, key pieces to the steps in trying to achieve particular goals. So uh, it sounds like you're, you're advocating a very measured and deliberate approach. I mean, I, I keep thinking of, you know, you got these same people that are looking about their HCAP scores, their core measures, um, you know, and, and now we're going to say, we, you know, we're for sepsis, we're going to give you another set of metrics. And to summarize what, what you just said there is that it is okay to focus on something, timeliness of antibiotics, resuscitation, taking all of this guideline and taking it apart and focusing on a particular area. Now, let me ask you this. You know, I don't, what did you do at Cooper? Or what have you learned about your colleagues around the country? We know if we want to change a behavior, we need to measure it. Um, how is that working at Cooper? Uh, is there some, is that fall on each individual department to measure how they're performing or is there a project manager or an over our overall hospital QI? How did you build that into the culture? Uh, well, we were uh, heavily vested into the uh, Surviving Sepsis Campaign database. Uh, so we actually have a database that allows us to um, capture the specific data points. Um, and we do have a group of uh, nurses that are responsible for critical care um, database and quality improvement. And they basically review every patient who's admitted to the ICU, um, you know, over the past 24 hours and evaluate whether or not they meet the criteria for, um, you know, severe sepsis or septic shock. And if they do, that information is entered into a database. For a patient that has severe sepsis, it generally takes about 15 minutes to enter the data. And for a patient who has uh, septic shock, obviously there was a, a few more indicators that would have to be uh, evaluated and enter, to enter data for those particular patients. They take about 20 minutes. And on average, uh, patients actually meet the criteria 
in a month, uh, maybe about 15 patients um, in our institution, and we have a 30-bed ICU. Uh, so in general, um, a person who's actually collecting data and reporting data for this particular um, performance improvement program may spend uh, 10 to 12 hours a week um, you know, reviewing new patients um, and entering data. We also um, not only review patients that are admitted to the ICU, uh, we also look at patients who have been in the ICU for uh, more than three days um, to see if they're developing uh, signs and symptoms of severe sepsis or septic shock. Um, and they are, you know, obviously concerned as well, um, and they will also go into the database. I think we're all um, familiar that a lot of uh, places around the country, certain states and uh, jurisdictions are having to report publicly um, their outcomes in regards to things like ventilator-acquired pneumonia, central venous catheter infections, and UTIs, which is which is good. I, I think it's important that people know, you know as far as quality metrics, but that's when people are getting septic, um, but we're not measuring or reporting uh, how we actually respond to these things like pneumonia or urinary catheter infections and central venous catheter infections, how we respond to sepsis. Is that something that we're going to see in the future, that we're going to have external agencies benchmarking our performance on how we adhere to the sepsis guidelines? I would think that in the, the future there will be, um, obviously, agencies that are looking into this, uh, only because this is a, um, a group of patients that, you know, use a lot of resources. Um, they're, they have a high mortality, and this is a a hot group of uh, patients that uh, we just need to do a little bit better with their management. And um, you know, if we were all doing you know the best possible care, and the mortality of this particular patient population was you know low, it really wouldn't be an item that people were interested in. But obviously, there's um, some significance to this, um, and you know, even from a, a public standpoint, patient, you know, the, the public is more aware of the the impact that this particular disease process, you know, potentially could have. Uh, so I think the public is becoming more aware and has a greater understanding. And once that happens, it has you know a greater impact on the community as a whole. Um, so public reporting, you know, kind of forces us to look at the way we're performing. And, you know, if we're performing at a high level, these kinds of things are really not frightening. If we're performing at a, at a lower level um, or do not have the resources um, even to, to look at how we're performing, then I think this is going to be a huge problem for institutions. Um, but, I mean, the, the guidelines have been published, um, you know, several times with updates. Um, and institutions have kind of captured, you know, the, the clinical significance of, you know, implementing a protocol and, and um, implementing a performance improvement program. It may not be as frightening to them because they've been doing this for a while. For institutions who maybe have not jumped on board or are going to be, you know, late adopters of what's been happening over the past eight years, it may be more challenging. I yeah, that's a perfect response in my opinion because you know it when you read the guidelines, they're they make sense, they're logical, they don't require a tremendous you know they don't require an investment of infrastructure, they don't expensive equipment. It's doing 
things that we already should be doing in regards to resuscitation, source control, timely administration of antibiotics. Um, and it's just doing it in a very um, well-delivered, organized fashion. And um, it's, it's, it's kind of baffles me that here we are into, you know, what is this, the, the third or fourth uh, revision? And there are people who haven't adopted it. I mean, I used to tell the residents, it's like, look, you know, there's, you, everybody seems to know their ACLS seven ways to Sunday, uh, but the surviving sepsis guidelines are something that you're probably going to use with a much greater frequency, I certainly hope, than you would your ACLS. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, you know, it's really not a whole lot different than the way we, you know, treated patients with stroke or MI in the past. I mean, uh, you know, again, they were hot spots and, you know, we were losing patients um, and young patients um, at that. And, uh, you know, once we were able to implement, you know, some, you know, early early recognition, early treatment, I mean, you can see the mortality from, you know, and, you know, overall uh, cardiac damage from MIs has really, you know, declined. So I think the same principles are applying here. It's just sepsis is not necessarily a clear diagnosis, and I think that's where um, clinicians have some challenges there, too. So it's it's not that we have a test for it. You know, we don't have a blood test that will say, okay, this is, you know, equal to a troponin. Um, And I think that's where the challenges come in and the frustration. Um, But I think if we can actually get clinicians to recognize the signs and symptoms, you know, an infection and the severity of the infection and how it potentially can progress right in front of your eyes, um, I think that will make a huge difference. And, you know, sometimes for new physicians, new residents, I think until they actually see the potential bad outcomes of not recognizing something early, um, I'm not really sure everybody really can grasp that concept or you know, when you have a patient that you've treated very aggressively and they walk out of the hospital, I mean, those kinds of things really make a difference when you're trying to treat somebody or um, recognize, you know, the disease process. Um, but, I, again, it's not an easy diagnosis to make. Um, you know, there's multiple things that potentially are going on, and it's really just classifying the infection and whether or not there are any organs involved um, in acute deterioration as well. And, you know, it's, it's hard. It's not an easy uh, process, but I think we're, we have the potential to get better. In your experience there at Cooper, and I think you kind of hit it on it a little bit as well, uh, what are some of the, the, the challenges or the pitfalls or the frustrations that you had um, adopting it at, at Cooper? Or what would your recommendations as, we, as you know, for physician and, and nurse leadership around the country in getting them to implement surviving sepsis uh, guidelines in their hospitals? Well, I think the challenge for for uh, institutions is really, um, you know, we know what we want to do. It's just trying to get everyone on board. Um, so there will always be people that will say, yes, this is a good idea. Yes, I think we should do this. But when the patient is, at, is in their care, maybe they'll, you know, they may kind of skew things a little bit to say, you know, this patient has a history of heart failure. I shouldn't be giving them that much fluid. Yet in a meeting the week before, we all agreed that everybody's going to get 30 mLs of fluid. Um, so it's, you know, those kinds of things are challenging, but they will be ongoing, um, and you just hope that you can present enough data to that particular physician or nurse to say, 
you know, this is what we need to do. There may be a few patients that are going to be unique, but in the overall aspect of what we're trying to do here, we're really trying to regiment the, the treatment. Um, so the, the barriers, um, even with, you know, physicians and nurses who present challenges to us, we just continue to have to work through that. Um, implementing a protocol through an electronic medical record um, and getting the uh, physicians even to order, you know, the particular protocol to be implemented. I think there are a lot of hospitals that actually have, um, you know, an order set, um, but for the physician to recognize the signs and symptoms to order the order set is a problem. So the nurse can follow through with the orders the protocol is actually ordered and initiated. Um, so there are problems with that. So again, it, it's the recognition of the patient's signs and symptoms and whether or not you're ordering the right protocol uh, for the patient being admitted to the ICU. Um, the other um, barrier was um, equipment um, and uh, the knowledge of the uh, staff in the emergency department you know, being able to measure CVP in the ED if it was in that, you know, that six-hour time period. Um, so supporting the nursing staff with education and resources initially, I think, is, is very helpful. And um, having resources from the ICU to support the ED staff um, was uh, proven to us that, you know, in the short term, that was a, a great fix, and it really gave the, the staff confidence in what they were doing. And, you know, over a course of a year or so, uh, those resources really were not needed anymore, that, you know, each unit could really function on their own. So they were the primary challenges. We did have challenges, again, just like most institutions with antibiotic delivery, and uh, we <clears throat> pulled our pharmacy uh, team into the into the loop and implemented a stat sepsis antibiotic delivery. So if there was a patient identified anywhere in the hospital and the patient was identified as having severe sepsis or septic shock, the physicians could check a box to say this is sepsis stat and the antibiotics were mixed and delivered directly to the bedside. And we track that in um, you know rapid cycle change over a course of uh, 10 or 15 patients and the antibiotics were delivered very quickly to the bedside within 7 to 10 minutes. Uh, really? So that really helped us with our antibiotic delivery. But again, it's it's another uh, group within the hospital that you know really had a significant impact on our improvement process. So you have a, a second layer of you have a stat, and then you have a, a septic stat. Well, you know what we recognize that um, you know it's interesting how orders were written, um, and we would have now orders, we had stat orders. Um, but for some reason, an antibiotic um, wasn't ringing in the brains of people that, that that means you need to deliver it as soon as it gets to the bedside. Even though it had a stat sticker on, you know, the, the nurse would just look at it and say it was just an antibiotic. Um, and, you know, once we were able to educate the staff that, you know, this patient is critically ill, that a stat antibiotic you know, could make the difference of whether or not, you know, this patient lives or dies or has a 10-day hospital stay versus a 30-day hospital stay. Um, and once we were able to, to do that, um, the recommendation from the pharmacist was we're just going to have a specific order that says sepsis stat and we will deliver the antibiotic to the bedside and give it to the nurse. And then the nurses obviously recognize that this is a drug that has to be hung right this second. 
and um, that, that's the way, you know, it works here. Um, there are some hospitals I know that have rapid response teams and have antibiotics available, you know, that they can actually administer them, you know, very rapidly on the floor. Um, so there are a lot of different things that, and obviously you have to gear your performance improvement based on the resources within each institution. Uh, so every hospital may not have the same resources, but you can fine-tune it um, where it meets the needs of the patient and also uses the resources within your institution, um, you know, most effectively. Well, that's fascinating. That's excellent information. I, so, you know, basically they, they understood a stat for a levofed or epidrip, but treated antibiotics that were ordered stat differently because... Clearly, if somebody needs an epidrip, they need it now. Um, right, and it's just one of those things, too. You you kind of look at the patient. You say the patient's hypotensive. It's an emergency where the patient's having chest pain. Nitroglycerin is not a question of whether or not we need to give that right now. You know what I mean? It's, it's just one of those things that um, an antibiotic wasn't really sinking in the brains as something that was considered an emergency drug. Um, and it, even though it's not an emergency drug, it's something that needs to be administered quickly. Um, and it does make a difference. Every hour makes a difference. Every 30 minutes makes a difference. So, you know, once you can get, you know, your staff on board with that, um, it really makes a huge, a huge difference. And for us, I mean, even in our ED, we were able to deliver antibiotics in less than two hours and have been consistently for several years now. Excellent information. I, I really appreciate it. We've been talking to Krista Shore from Cooper Hospital in Camden, New Jersey, and she, she's been sharing with us um, her experiences and lessons learned really in implementing the Surviving Sepsis Campaign Guidelines. Krista, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. This concludes another edition of the I Critical Care Podcast. Please check out our website at www.sccm.org slash iCriticalCare for more episodes or subscribe at iTunes by searching SCCM. The early identification and treatment of sepsis using an early goal-directed therapy, EGDT, protocol has been shown to reduce sepsis-related mortality by 46%. Edwards Life Sciences Healthcare Provider Solutions can serve as your expert advisor for implementing EGDT. We provide the analysis, education, and processes to help standardize care, reduce complications, and improve outcomes. Jeffrey Guy, MD, MSC, MMHC, is editor of the iCritical Care Podcasts. He is the chief medical officer at Centennial Women's and Children's Hospital in Nashville, Tennessee. His clinical practice is focused on critical care, pediatric and adult burn surgery, and emergency general surgery. The iCritical Care podcast is copyrighted material and all rights are reserved. Statements of fact and opinion expressed in this podcast are those of authors and participants and do not imply an opinion on the part of the Society of Critical Care Medicine or its officers or members.